Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This week, I've got two brilliant guests. The first is a barrister whose story went viral a few weeks ago when the court services kept suggesting that actually she wasn't a barrister, she was a defendant explains why and then the legend that is dolly alderton voice of a generation although not according to her she's talking all about her new book ghost ghosting and dating in the 21st century first up let's find out what it's like to be a black barrister in today's england this is the badass women's hour podcast now imagine for a moment that you spent years training to become a job that you had dreamed of since a child. You put your heart and soul into it. You worked hard at school, hard at university. You went on and did further study. And then whenever you walked into that job, people just refused to believe that you were that qualified professional you said you were. Well, that is the experience our next guest had. And she's here to tell us all about it now. I'm joined by Alexandra Wilson. Hi, Alexandra. Hello. Thank you so much for talking to us about this. So this is a story that just blew up a couple of weeks ago about your experience as a barrister in the British court system. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Of course. Um, A few weeks ago, I went to court to represent one of my clients in the magistrate's court. And just for context, in the magistrate's court, we don't wear our wigs and gowns. We Mm -hmm. we dress in a, a, a black business suit. Yeah. I attended court and multiple times that day, I was assumed to be the defendant. When I entered the building, the security officer asked for my full name to tick me off the list of defendants. Um, I explained I wasn't there as a defendant. I was a barrister. When I entered the courtroom, um, another barrister or solicitor, another legal representative told me to go back outside and wait for the usher to sign in for my case. Again, I explained that just like her, I was one of uh, the barristers representing mm-hmm. a client today. And then when I was in the courtroom, I went to go and speak to the prosecutor before my case and the, the legal advisor, the court clerk, shouted at me to get out of the courtroom and again sign in with the usher and wait for my case and then asked whether I was represented today. Um, again, I had to explain for the third time to a professional in court that I was the barrister, yeah. um, which you know, led me to tweeting about how upset and exhausted I was at the end of that day. And obviously we're on the radio, so people can't see what you look like, but you are a young black woman, right? You're in your mid-twenties, young black woman. And essentially what's happening here is that people are looking at you and going, well, she can't possibly be a barrister because in our head, a barrister 
is for a start white minimum and then probably a bit older and probably a man that is i i mean that is to me what it sounds like is going on here is that what it felt like for you exactly that at the end of the day there were other uh solicitors and barristers walking in and out of the courtroom who were all white Mm -hmm. um, and they were not challenged at all you know some of them were younger some of them were older Mm -hmm. um, but no one else was challenged in the way that I was challenged and I think for me the the way I was treated that day is symptomatic of a much bigger issue which is the over criminalization of black people Mm -hmm. you know people see black people and assume that you must be a criminal particularly in a court setting have you had this experience before Yes, not a number of times. Mm. And, you know, one of the reasons that I tweeted about it was just because it happened so many times in one day. But this is something that, you know, I've written articles about before and spoken out about before. And so have many of my other black colleagues, you know, other black barristers, other black solicitors, even black judges and black QCs have said that, you know, throughout their career a black judge spoke to me the other day and said you know even when he goes to court now and he'll go through the judicial entrance you know a separate entrance for judges and he'll always be challenged and Mm -hmm. told you know you need to you know as um, as as someone who's attending court you need to use the main entrance and he has to justify that he is a judge despite you know having been at the bar and then at the judge for however many years so it's something that a lot of us have experienced for a very long time what was the response from the people who challenged you when you said, uh, no, hang on, I'm here in my professional capacity? It was actually a mix. So the, the security officer did apologise. Mm. Um, he apologised straight away. But both the solicitor or barrister yeah. um, and the, the court clerk, both of them looked very awkward and yeah. you know looked away but there was no apology there was no acknowledgement for the fact that they'd made that assumption I'm sure they probably were a bit embarrassed mm-hmm. um but there was no recognition of what had gone wrong um and and that can make it more difficult as well because yeah. it makes you feel slightly awkward and off you yeah. know and as when when really you're just mm-hmm. there to do your job yeah do you think this is a problem within the profession do you think there's a level of kind of conscious or unconscious bias going on here within the profession I think that the profession certainly isn't representative of society yet Mm. and I do think that that plays into uh, my experience and the experience of many others I think Mm. that you know at the moment although the junior end of our profession is getting better it's getting more representative and that's on you know the gender front and the race front um the, the senior end of the profession definitely isn't representative enough yet. Um, we don't have enough. We don't retain women or ethnic minorities, frankly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, you look at QCs and judges, I think both, for, you know, there were about 1% of QCs are black or about 1% of judges are black. Mm-hmm. And when you look at women, you know, women also drop off in huge numbers as we get to the QC and, and judiciary level. Um, so I do think the profession has got some work to do in terms of becoming more representative. But saying that, I think one thing that I can say is when I spoke out about my experience, Mm. uh, the vast majority of people in my profession were actually very supportive. And, you know, very senior people in the profession, the head of the Bar Council, reached out on both a personal level, but also got in contact with the court service to address it. So I, I am hopeful for things to actually move forward and change. I think it's people are listening and it it does sometimes take you know people speaking about their personal experiences Mm. um for these sort of things to be highlighted and I'm glad it's being taken seriously by the profession Mm. 
you talked earlier about how actually this is is linked to the overcriminalization of black people. For anyone who doesn't really understand what that means, can you tell us? Of course. Um, so the overcriminalization of black people essentially is black people being forced into the criminal justice system at a disproportionate rate to white people. And so that can be seen right from, you know, street level policing. The Met, the Met Police, um, their statistics show that black people are stopped and searched at a much higher rate than their white counterparts. So it's 38 per 1,000 black people versus just four per 1,000 white people. Wow. So you know, that, that, that's almost 10 times yeah. as many stops and searches for black people. So even from street level policing, black people are being over-policed, yeah. which means that when you then go to the magistrate's court, there are going to be a higher proportion of black people because mm-hmm. more people are being arrested and charged, even if they don't ever actually get convicted. Yeah. You're pushing people into a system. And so people are seeing proportionally more black people on the defendant side in courts. And then those sort of trends are apparent later on. So, you know, black people receive harsher sentences than white people. And that's on the Ministry of Justice's own reports. That's not just anecdotal. Mm. You know, black people are overrepresented in prisons. I think 12% of the prison population is black, even though black people make up just under 4% of the population. Um, So, you know, these problems start on the street level. Um, yeah. And they filter through the whole system. And it's it's the, the biggest issue here is that a lot of the ideas that we have as a, I know some people call it unconscious bias, but mm-hmm. ultimately I think that we can't use that as an excuse anymore. Yeah. A lot of the ideas that we have about what black people are like and some of the cultural mm. attributes are being criminalised. So, mm. for example, I know Amnesty International, the big charity, did a report on the Metropolitan Police so it's gang matrix and that's basically a database where they 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 highlight you know who they believe to be in gangs in london and on that matrix 78% of the people on their database were black 78% wow. that's a huge number and of course massively disproportionate to the black population and when the amnesty international did their report on it they they showed that actually a lot of the the factors that they were t- the police were taking into consideration were actually just cultural ind- indicators like cultural factors associated with black people and so until we tackle those sort of things, black people are going to continue to be overcriminalized. They're going to continue to be stopped and searched at disproportionate rates and then fed through the system at a disproportionate rate, which is going to result in things like my experience where, mm-hmm. you know, you see a black person and you assume that they must be a defendant. Yeah. And what impact do you think that has on the black community's view of the judicial system? I think it leads to a breakdown in trust um, and reinforces that lack, that that lack of trust and that can be really difficult because actually that can be very detrimental you know if because i personally have experienced you know where clients feel that barristers or you know solicitors people who are on their side are part of the establishment and part of yeah. a system they don't trust and so then when we're trying to give them advice and and you know give them advice that's in their best interest which might sometimes be for example pleading guilty at an early opportunity where they might receive some credit a discount on their sentence Mm. often they won't trust us in that decision because they have such a lack of trust for the establishment and that can be you know that can be adverse to their their own interests and it can mean that actually they might end up with a longer sentence or they might end up going further along the process incurring costs in some cases 
um, because there's a real breakdown of trust, it can also create, you know, hostile tensions in the community with community policing. Um, so there are huge drawbacks to to this over policing, over criminalization of black people. Um, and that's why I think it's actually it's it should be a huge priority to start addressing these things. And I'm glad that now these things are being talked about um, in a way that's, you know, more than before, to be honest. They're being Absolutely. spoken about much more than before. I'm really glad they are too. And thank you for sharing your story. I think it, you know, what you're describing there, Alexandra, is A, just obviously unacceptable, but also it's a daily reality. And if we don't explain and say it's a daily reality, it's going to keep going on and we really need to get to the end of it. So thank you so much for sharing it and for coming thank on you today. Thank you for having me. Alexandra Wilson there you can find her at Essex Barrister on social media talking about her experiences being being a black barrister in the legal profession just a brilliant example there of actually why when people start to say do you know what this is not okay right now appears to be a time when hopefully as white people we are listening and maybe that might affect some change which would be good for all of us. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. And I know I'm slipping all these demons away, but your ghost, the ghost of it, wakes me away. Oh, those naughty, naughty ghosts. The people who you think are the one. You love them. You had the best day ever. And then they disappear. What happens to them? Is there literally some sort of giant hole in the middle of London that swallows them up? Did they actually get run over by a bus? Did they? I mean, I think dating me at some point was really quite a kind of extreme sport. Your chances of coming out of it alive, apparently, very slim. Um, But our next guest has written a book trying to answer that question. Where do they go? Ghosts is out now. I read it today. It is funny and beautiful and it made me laugh and cry in equal measure. 
And our next guest is the author, Dolly Alderton. Hi, Dolly. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. Um, It is fabulous to have you here on a Saturday night. I absolutely loved Ghosts. I devoured it basically in one sitting and just refused to answer my phone or talk to anyone else while I was reading it. It was brilliant. Oh, thank you. It is a little bit like having somebody write my early 30s dating life and reliving it, which was mildly traumatic at some points. Um, But did you set out to write a book which every 30-something woman was going to identify with? I'm so glad that 30-something women have identified with it. It's not something that I ever think about when I'm writing. I never kind of Mm. write thinking, how do I make this relatable to everyone? I think I was writing about something that was very true for me at the time and very true for lots of people that I knew and friends of friends it just felt like ghosting was a thing that was in the atmosphere and I kept hearing about so I just wanted to try and write about that experience and find a language for that experience and hope that it resonated with with other people. One of the things I loved about the book is I think when we talk about dating now we talk so often about oh I've been ghosted and what it's like to be ghosted in that moment you know that sort of um that kind of two-week period afterwards where you are doing, as you say in the book, all the detective work to try and work out, are they still alive? What's happened to them? Or they've appeared online and they must be alive. Um, But actually it has a much deeper impact on us and how we feel about dating and how we feel about the people that we're dating. How did you go about, is that just from your own experience or was it from talking to others? How did you go about researching it? I think when you've been single for a long time, particularly Mm. when you move into your 30s, so for lots of people that means they've been single for on and off for the best part of a decade and dating for the best part of a decade. And anyone who's been dating, particularly in a city, I think, knows Mm. how exhausting that can be and how much strength of hope and courage (laughs) and optimism you have to summon with every date. And I think I, I did really want to look at that act of bravery not to make it too grandiose but to think of how brave you have to be to to summon faith once again with a new person and know the emotional expenditure that you potentially could you could spend on someone and like I remember my ex-boyfriend said this thing to me that I think about all the time where (laughs) the first time that he met me he said he looked at me and and thought I'm going to really cry a lot about this girl. <laughs> and I think that's so telling of what happens when you've been dating for such a long time that when you sit opposite someone that you like, mm-hmm. the first thing that comes to mind is not, oh, I'm going to have a wonderful future with them. It's like, oh, this person is going to ruin my life, potentially. So I really wanted to capture that like tension of, of hope and resentment and cynicism. I mean, there is a really beautiful point in the book where um, uh, Lola, who's the best friend of the main character, Nina, says to her, you know, Nina's got to a point where she's feeling very kind of like, I've had enough of dating. And she says to her, I'll carry the hope for you. And I actually had a friend who said that to me at one point when I was like, I I cannot date anyone else. And she's like, tell you what, I'll just hold the vision for you. I'll hold it for you. You come back when you're ready. Do you think that actually part of the book, I thought it was a real love letter to the love that isn't romantic love, Mm. that is our friends, is our family? Yeah, and particularly I think that there's something that happens between single women in their 30s that's like a great romantic camaraderie 
that's heightened much more than when you're a 20 something of just knowing what it is what that experience is how draining that can be the amount of courage and energy that you have to summon every time you go on a date with a stranger and I wanted to capture that and actually that quote is based on something that a friend of mine who's an author called Laura Jane Williams said to me when I was uh, crying over a breakup Mm. into my Sauvignon Blanc (laughs) to her and she said to me the next day, she sent me a beautiful message saying, I know for what it's worth, I know that there is a love ahead of you that is grander than either of us can imagine. And I know for you right now, it's too hard and it's too painful and it's too illogical to imagine what that love might be. So instead of beating yourself up about the fact that you can't imagine that, why don't you give that responsibility to me? And I will hope for that for you because I know that's in your future so I will hope that for you and then whenever you're ready I can give that hope back to you and it was such a generous beautiful thing that she said that when I came to write the book I said to her that's going to be a big sentiment I think between two of the best friend characters in Ghosts and can I steal it and she said (laughs) steal away because beyond romance whether it's about career or family or mental health or all of the big practical things that we're having to deal with in our 30s and beyond and they Mm -hmm. get so much heavier in our 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s to be able to outsource your optimism for people to people who love you and know you and who want those things for you and know those things are in your future I think that's a wonderful function of friendship it's just such a beautiful thing I mean if anyone's listening to it and you have a single friend who's going through it take that sentence away send it to them now they need it um one of the big themes that felt for me was going through the book was the concept of time and how actually there is time is different based on your age your gender your experience of it so if you're a 30 something woman and you want to have babies and you are really feeling the pressure of time in a way that you're not if you're a 30 something year old man um and that equally you see in the parent the parents in the book you know that time is very different for the father than it is for the mother were you feeling those pressures of time when you wrote it yeah definitely I think something happens to you when you move Mm. into the second act of your life which if Mm. people live for 90 years which is optimistic (laughs) when they get to 30 that is the second act and I had a meltdown that I wrote about extensively when I turned 30 (laughs) and understandably a lot of older people said to me how dare you write about an existential (laughs) meltdown about (laughs) aging age 30 but I do even though I think that's kind of dramatic I do defend a person's right to have a bit of a freak out because now with the age span that we have when you get into your 30s you are entering this big middle section and that does warp your sense of time it does underpin the next however many decades of your life with the sense of mortality and the sense of inevitability you're suddenly pushed into the life cycle in a way that most people are lucky enough in their 20s that they're not in the middle of where you're thinking about bringing life into the world trying to bring life into the world and failing to bring life into the world mm. parents dying parents fading suddenly the life cycle is very much at the forefront of your mind and that concept of time you know it does preoccupy me I wish it didn't I know lots of people for whom it doesn't preoccupy their thoughts mm. um, but it is something that yeah for a lot of 30 something it's the it's the first time you're thinking about that stuff and yeah it's it's that does if that's bubbling away in your unconscious that will affect the decisions that you make and the dynamics of your relationships and that's something that I wanted to explore in this book 
Do you think that your kind of previous experience of writing, so you're very open, you've written about your life, you wrote your dating column, then you wrote your first book, which was a memoir. Did you consciously make a decision that, because it's interesting, I've read you say, I consciously made a decision, I didn't want to keep writing about myself, I wanted to write fiction. But the fiction is still about somebody at the same age point as you, kind of going through some of the same experiences. Were you drawing from yourself or... Were you making a conscious decision, this is not me? I mean, the character of Nina is very different to me. Her personality is very different to me. Her mindset is very different to me. Her family, her parents are very different to me. Her relationship history is different to mine. I really wanted to create a character who not is in defensive opposition to me, but Mm. I wanted to create a character for whom it would be a little bit of a holiday every day to be in her (laughs) head rather than mine because my head can be... A little bit tyrannical so I wanted to be in the head of someone who had a very sure sense of self yeah. who uh, wasn't preoccupied with the approval of other people mm. all the things all the neurotic things about me that shape my thoughts I wanted to have a little bit of a break from so she is different to me in lots of respects and her life is very different to me but the fact is I was writing it in the first person narrative voice Mm -hmm. so we are going to share a sense of humor because we (laughs) observe the same things and we find the same things funny and also I'm I'm never going to be uh, you know mystical or mysterious (laughs) about the fact that I write to process the world so I can do that through lots of different characters and lots of different heads but we're still processing the same things and that's not something I feel ashamed of and I don't think that it dilutes any act of imagination or empathy or mm-hmm. fictionalizing. There's this amazing author called uh, Taffy Brodessa Ackner and she was is a journalist and also has uh, written fiction and she said this phrase that when she was referring to her fiction that I now think about all the time when she's describing the book where she said, all of it is real and none of it happened. And that's exactly (laughs) how I feel when I'm writing scripts or fiction. I can't say that I'm entirely divorced from it. Of course, of course I'm in it. I'm in every character. I'm in every emotion. I'm in every sensory feeling. I'm in every joke, but it's not a direct reflection of what's happening in my life now. It's really interesting. You say I was in every character. Were you in the men? Um, Yeah, I think I was in The Men, actually. I'm so glad that you asked me that because I did get to a point when I was writing the book where I thought, you know what, this is becoming a little bit of a polemic about the evils of heterosexual (laughs) men, which, trust me, Harriet, I would be very happy to write that book. (laughs) I mean, I've got so many chapters to contribute. Yes, go on. (laughs) But equally, I didn't want the book to be a transcription of me and seven of my best mates in the pub <laughs> you know it's not about a doctrine or theorizing it's about getting into the heads and understanding the psychology of all these different people and actually when I finished the book when I first handed it in the first draft I remember I was listening to an interview with Tayari Jones who's one of my favorite novelists mm. I was listening to her uh, talk about her most recent book which is about a polygamist And she said, but she wrote in the third person narrator, and she said, I couldn't hate that man because I can't hate anyone who I write a book about. I have to understand them. I have to spend all this time with them. I don't, I'm not there to judge them. And I remember listening to it and I was like, oh, I've got to change the end of Ghosts. And I rang my editor the next day and I was like, I need to do some 
tinkering on Max. I really need to do some digging into who he is, the tragedies and the complications Mm. of who he is. Even if we don't delve into it, we need to see the tip of the iceberg and we need to understand him and we need my protagonist to take a degree of accountability in the tragedy that is the their disastrous relationship mm. because I don't want to write a book that's just one woman ranting about her experience of heterosexuality I want to understand why men behave like this so I made some last minute changes that I'm really glad that I made to to understand and and in a way love that man a bit more than I did in the first draft I mean I I think that really comes across there's a, a sort of beautiful moment sort of early on in the book when uh Nina is starting off on her dating you know app dating life and she starts putting lots of men into different boxes you know so there's the guy who always goes to a festival and there's the guy who uh desperately wants a girlfriend so pretends that he's a perfect boyfriend material but probably isn't and I love that because it was sort of those tropes that I think if you follow lots of female authors or writers on Twitter, which I do, we occasionally mock male writers for doing with women. You know, we sort of say mm. they describe them entirely by their physicality and not doing them. And it's like mm. she starts in that place where she's almost putting them in boxes and ends up actually being able to see them as whole but flawed mm. people. Totally. And I think, you know, I know this is not a very <laughs> trendy stance to have, but like, I feel really sorry for heterosexual men. When I look at the like mainly disasters that I see in dating culture between men and women, I think I think it's men upholding what they think women want and women upholding what they think men want. I think there's a massive disconnect and I feel sorry for everyone in the situation. I really do. Like I don't <laughs> I think that dating culture has has been created in an in a in a very ancient way that we're not even aware of to maintain a structure that means that men have more freedom and more fun than women do but I don't think they're having a great time I don't think they're feeling entirely themselves and I don't I feel sad for all of us I think this is like a yeah as I said I think this is a miscommunication and a disconnect between both men and women I think there are pressures on both sides I don't think Mm. this is a matter of of a gender binary of good and bad. Do you think that app dating is almost creating a or adding to perhaps a sort of gender warfare, which is, you know, all my female friends and I were not app dating experience. Like, oh my God. And then they did this and you're not going to believe what this one's just sent me. And oh my God. And then I talked to my male friends and they're like, no, 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 trust me over here. It's pretty bad too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we, we can't seem to on either side come across as we actually are. Mm. Yeah. It's such an interesting question. I mean, I'm in such a weird position to answer that question because I went to an all-girls school. I did, mm. did you go to an all-girls school? I did, yes, which I do blame on my complete blame for my complete lack of understanding of men at all. So Yeah. So I feel like you and I maybe aren't in such a like I feel like I can't be any sort of voice of wisdom on this because <laughs> I think if you if your context of the world is just being with women all the time and the opposite sex are seen as the source of all excitement, all stimulation, something really mysterious, something really frightening, something really intimidating, something really scary, something that's a code to be cracked. Of course, I mean, personally, I subscribe to like 
those years are very formative about how you view other people. So I'm always going to feel that about men on some level, even the men that I'm very close to and the men that I love, even my closest male friends, Mm -hmm. there's always going to feel like there's that chasm. So I feel like maybe I'm not the right person to talk about that chasm because I know lots of women who grew up in households that were much more progressive or where, you know, mixed sex company was much more normalized and they have more of an ease of communication and understanding and empathy with each other than I do. But for me, yeah, that it... (sighs) Venus mm. and Mars, that's always going <laughs> to be the it? case for me. And it's it's always going to be. But, like, that's that's something that I find interesting. I like the, I like the pursuit of empathy and understanding of mm. that language. Like, I have a brother. I have close male friends. Yep. I've fallen in love with men who I care deeply about, and I'm sure I'll fall in love again. And, like, understanding where they're coming from and how their behavior to me might feel weird, shitty, mm. you know, I've just realised I've said the word shitty, but if I'm on badass We're woman's out, just... I think it's fine that I say shitty. <laughs> I'm um... going to apologise for it simply because Ofcom is just, it's not as badass as we are. So apologies for the bad language. <laughs> I'm so and sorry. And we'll take it out. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, I'm not radio friendly. I'm podcast friendly where there's a <laughs> diligent fine. editor. Um, I'm always going to... I'm always going to find like though that those differences that disparity interesting and I'm always going to want to learn about that but I think for lots of people maybe it's not maybe I don't know if you have friends like this like I speak to some people mm-hmm. for whom it doesn't feel like such an enormous gap I def- I definitely have friends who feel that they don't I I definitely have I would say female friends who feel they understand men better um and I then they almost do women and I find that sort of really strange I have one very good friend who always says to me oh gosh men are men are easy it's women that are complicated I'm like what women are so straightforward Mm. um so maybe we're never meant to really understand each other I think um your new book Ghosts is out now this officially marks a kind of I guess a new chapter for want of a very cliche term um for you going from Dolly Alderton journalist to Dolly Alderton fiction author how does that feel it feels great (laughs) I'm very very happy with that I loved writing this novel Mm. I would like to write many 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 more novels I'm very aware that I've uh, taken up a lot of people's time and focus and energy (laughs) over the last 10 years just blabbing about myself so it might take people some time to uh, acclimatize to me being someone who writes about made-up people in a made-up world rather than just reporting on themselves and uh, that's fine I'm more than happy to work very hard to earn my stripes on that if that takes a decade or two decades I'm happy to just keep writing novels until I get there What's the writing experience like for you? Do you are you somebody who finds it easy to sit down and write? Do you have a, a structure or is it more like I need to go and lock myself in a cottage in the woods and not talk to anyone in order to get this done? Um, it's a mixture of everything you've just said. <laughs> I like total isolation. Phone has to be on airplane mode. I need absolute routine. I need nine to five. And the thing that's most boring about me that makes me think I must not be a natural writer because I have never met any other writer who does this is I need an extremely comprehensive and rigorous structure before I start writing anything even when I'm writing an article you know when you're a kid Mm -hmm. and you're writing your essays and it will be like introduction (laughs) hypothesis (laughs) conclusion 
I do those titles even when I'm writing an 850 word column. So for me, I have to have though that structure to be able to uh, then improvise and be free with my prose and have fun within it. But I need to know that I can do that knowing that there's a plan. Do you, when you're writing fiction, is is that plan literally like, and I know which character's doing what, at which time, where in the, or does it change as you go? So I used to hate listening to novelists speaking about their characters like this in this sort of like fey dream catchery way when you'd hear novelists say like oh they came to me in a dream and I met Nina and then Nina <laughs> taught me so much about who she was I would listen to that and just like shut up this is stuff that comes out of your mind in a very strategic fashion and yet lo and behold I've written my first novel and I now completely empathize with this like very intimate sense of magic that you have when you're creating a pretend world with pretend people mm. that you you kind of come up with the people together you and the person <laughs> and then they take on their own life so I had when I look at the proposal version of Nina that I handed in and then the final draft of Nina they're completely different people and she did just kind of emerge to me on the page um and I've never had that before in writing and it is such a exciting thing you said there that um you spent sort of 10 years of your life talking about yourself so it's quite magical to be able to talk about other people do you think those 10 years I think for all of us were almost the kind of 10 years of oversharing where we all became obsessed with broadcasting whatever we were doing to anyone at any time do you think post lockdown, actually, we are now moving into a time where maybe we value our privacy a little bit more? I think I think that it's not even to do with lockdown. I think mm. it's like a generational evolution that I've noticed. I left Twitter in May and I gave my password to my best friend and she now <laughs> does all my tweets and it wasn't just it while I was doing that it wasn't to do with my job there were lots of people I know who were going through the same thing and I remember calculating from when my first tweet was which was 2009 I was like right so that's basically a decade that's basically mm -hmm. a decade of me sharing everything and the life cycle's complete. I think it's, we're all becoming more aware of how information is shared, yeah. of how people can judge and analyze and uh, misjudge, indeed, people, uh, people's online persona. And uh, that's something we're all becoming gradually more aware of. I think naturally people become more private as they get older. And that doesn't mean that they are, you know, regretful of what they've shared in their younger life. It's just that something happened. The cliche that you don't expect that mm -hmm. becomes true is that you do just become more private. You don't need to broadcast who you are to have a sense of who you are. So I think that that's just happening generally to my generation yeah. um and I think yeah I am I don't know about you and your friends but it's something mm -hmm. I'm just like gradually in one way or another it doesn't matter how big our profiles are it doesn't matter what our jobs are we're all just gradually shifting to this general idea of do you know what I think it's definitely more important that the flesh and blood earth and sky <laughs> life that we lead that that takes up more time and focus and that is more important than this virtual one 
I absolutely agree. I actually took all social media off my phone, I think, in July for the first time in about probably, oh God, even longer than that, 12 years, I think. And I, I was like, I'll just take a month off. I'll see what happens. I cannot be bothered with it now. <laughs> I feel deeply yeah. resentful every time I have to do anything with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's weird. I've, I've, one of my dearest friends is an author called Caroline O'Donoghue, mm. and both she and I have this impending sense of fatality and doom, and we're very, very scared of death. And we both <laughs> took a break from Twitter at the same time. And I remember a couple of months in, she said to me, do you ever search your handle? And obviously I did. Once a week, I would put my handle into Twitter just to see if anyone was tweeting me or tweeting about me. And what was so amazing, Harriet, is like she and I both had the same experience where no one was tweeting us. (laughs) No one was sending us messages. And it's basically like if you're not online and there in the virtual world, then people are going to forget, like people aren't going to try and communicate with you in the virtual world I remember mm-hmm. Caroline saying to me isn't it weird that you and I are both so obsessed with this idea of death and yet we search our names we see nothing come up and we both feel nothing but yeah. serenity and peace and she yeah. was like in a weird way it's kind of the closest we can ever understand to what it will be like to not be here <laughs> and actually you don't feel like you're missing out you feel the blackness and nothingness feels like freedom it doesn't feel like panic and when she said that to me, I was like, maybe I'll be fine when I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, well, please don't die too soon because we need more writing from you. What are you working on at the moment? Oh, I'm working on some TV scripts and then I'll be working on another novel, hopefully. Well, I can't wait to read it because this one was honestly like having a beautiful day to myself to read something gorgeous. I absolutely loved it. So thank oh, you. Oh, I'm so pleased you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Dolly Alton, it's been fabulous talking to you. Dolly's new book, Ghosts, is out now. I cannot recommend it more. Go grab it immediately. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.